Hello and welcome to the Talking Law podcast with me, Sally Penny, MBE. Today I've got a fantastic, fantastic guest. I'm so excited because I'm such a, a girly swat. And many people who listen to this podcast will know that I love talking to experts uh, and legal experts uh, even better. My guest this week is Dr. Abena Awusu Bempa. Now, I'm going to ask her to introduce herself, so just to make sure I've pronounced her name right, um, because there's nothing more irritating. And I don't want to just cop out and keep calling her by her first name throughout, right? So my experts this week is, is fantastic, and we're having a discussion about drill music and its use in the criminal courts to convict the young people and older people. And some of you may have heard her expertise referred to uh, when I was interviewing and having a discussion about joint enterprise with uh, Felicity Gary, Queen's Counsel, uh, on one of the episodes on the Law and Guidance podcast. So without further ado, I'd like to invite you, please, to join me in what's going to prove to be a very interesting discussion. So welcome, Doctor. Can I ask you to introduce yourself? I'm calling you Doctor, I want to call you Professor. I want to call you, you know, every title. Get it. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're not on the we're not on the American system, so it's technically Doctor um, for now. Doctor Abana Owusu-Bempa. You almost pronounced my first name correctly. I think you actually have to be a native tree speaker to really be able to pronounce it correctly. Yes. So I'm I'm Doctor Abana Owusu-Bempa. I'm an academic at the London School of Economics. And can I ask you, you've authored several books and you have been an expert in this field for quite some time. One of your most recent books published by Routledge is a participation in the criminal procedure. And I'll come to how that came about because I'm interested in, for example, vulnerable people's participation in, in, um, in criminal procedure a, a bit later. Uh, but what, what's your specialist area at, at LSE? Um, so broadly criminal evidence, criminal procedure, criminal law. I teach in these areas and I research in this area. To date, most of my research and publications have been around the participatory rights of defendants in, in criminal proceedings, both the rights not to participate, like through the right to silence, the privilege against self-incrimination, but also rights to meaningfully and effectively participate in proceedings. I've also done quite a bit of work related to hate crime legislation and, and the operation of hate crime laws. And then most recently, my current research focuses on the use of rap music as evidence in criminal proceedings. Yes. Now, uh, that is uh, an evolving area and it's been used in cases I've defended and indeed uh, cases uh, I've prosecuted. And, and I wanted to go back, if you like, because recently or relatively recently, drill music in the UK has become the version of rap music which has been used in the criminal courts uh, a lot more. Is that your experience? And firstly, when is it being used? Yes, yeah, so I'm looking at the use of, of rap music. I'm not specifically looking at, at drill, although in, the, in recent years, the cases tend to be about drill music, uh, which, as you said, is a, a subgenre of, of rap. There are lots of subgenres of rap. I mean, rap as a genre of music is probably the most popular and profitable genre of music globally. Um, and then sub, some subgenres are quite upbeat and light party music. Some are quite political and conscious. And um, some are quite dark and provocative and violent and drill falls into the, the latter category. And it's sort of a, an offshoot of um, the earlier gangster rap subgenre. Um, yeah. So I've been looking at 
I've been focusing my academic research uh, at the moment on analyzing reported appeal case judgments because I'm interested in seeing how the law of evidence is being applied in relation to rap music, you know, how its relevance is being assessed, how is it being treated as evidence, you know, how are the courts assessing prejudicial effect. And so as I said, the most recent cases tend to focus on, on drill, but the patterns in the case law are quite consistent. So in terms of how it's being used, and stop me when I've said too much, because I'll just ramble on. I'm pretty ah, don't worry, don't worry. I'm, I'm so fascinated. I'll interject at the appropriate times. Okay. So in terms of how it's being used, it's, it seems to be used almost exclusively as evidence against young black boys and men, usually yes. teenagers in yes. London, um, most commonly in London. It, it does happen outside of London. Um, it's usually adduced as bad character evidence yes. or... Uh, otherwise as evidence to do with the alleged facts of the offence, which then means it doesn't have to go through one of the gateways for gateways. admission of character evidence. And, yes, at the Criminal Justice Act, yes. Yeah. And often this is being done in cases involving quite serious offences. So in the case law, and, and what I'm finding from the case law is roughly consistent with my experience of first instance trials, and you can tell me if you have a different experience, but these are often offences involving weapons. Yeah and uh, lots of firearms offences and possession yeah. of firearm with intent to endanger life. Um, also lots of violent offences, including homicides, manslaughter and, and murder. Yeah. A lot of these are joint cases of joint enterprise or secondary liability, and also often uh, are said to have a gang context. So we see sometimes rap being used to link defendants to a joint enterprise or to create a gang narrative. More specifically though, in terms of, of what it's being used to prove, what it's said it's relevant in relation to, I found three main things from the case law. So firstly, rap is used to help prove a motive for committing a crime. Mm. Um, so for example, if there is an attack and the, the prosecution say that this was a gang attack, you know, two gangs that have a rivalry and one has maybe committed some sort of revenge attack against another. And there are lyrics or videos where the defendant seems to be supporting a particular gang that's said to be involved. Um, that can be used to link them to the gang and ascribe to them this, this motive for the crime. Secondly, lyrics are often said to be relevant to a defendant's mindset. So we see this with uh, possession of firearms with intent to endanger life, for example. If there are lyrics which the defendant has written or they're in a video where there's lyrics about using firearms, hurting or killing people with firearms, then that is sometimes used to show if not a familiarity with firearms and a, a propensity or a tendency to actually use firearms to yes. endanger life. Um, and then thirdly, lyrics or videos are sometimes used to rebut a defense like innocent association with co-defendants or innocent presence at the scene of a crime. So if there was, again, thinking about an attack and the claim is that it was some sort of joint enterprise, there are a number of people involved and the defendant claims, you know, maybe I was at the scene of the crime, but I had nothing to do with it. I was just happened to be there. Yes. And there are lyrics or videos where they are um, you know, boasting about being violent and committing violent acts. And then that can sometimes get used to show either an interest in violence or, or going further, you know, a propensity for violence, which then can be used to help rebut a defense. Yes. Um, or... Or as, joint, as a joint enterprise, a conspirator, I think you, you mentioned it. So, you know, part of the conspiracy to commit an offence or as a joint enterprise that, you know, present present uh, and part of the alleged act. That's, that's part of yeah. my experience of it as well. OK. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, that's 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 how I see it being used. And yet you're absolutely right. And a lot of uh, maybe more in the first instance cases than in the appeal cases, conspiracy um, charges. And I think that there are it gets used in, in um, conspiracy to supply drugs as well. Yes, yes. 
So, it, it, interestingly, because we touched on the Criminal Justice Act 2003 uh, and it's Section 101, which is where this evidence largely falls under uh, as bad character. And of course, there's the safeguards are there, aren't they? You know, the prejudicial effect and relevance. Uh, when I look at some of the case law, particularly Aliumi, which is a bit old now because it's 2014, I know you've analysed uh, over 30 cases uh, uh, between a period of you know 2005 to present uh, 2020 so it's a long time in your expertise one of the things that struck me in the more recent case of Sode, and I know it's 2017 right which is I'll, I'll, I'll check these references on the so people can follow them was where a rap video was used two years before a shooting when the defendant was only 14 years old making gesture now isn't that causing an issue of relevance um, yeah that's one of the one of the cases that stood out to me because yeah it's shocking it's shocking know, a, a 14 year old boy in a video doing what according to um, i'd have to go back and look at the case it was probably a police expert because it's usually police officers who give evidence for the prosecution yes in yes cases. Uh, making signs and, and or gestures and remarks, you know, supporting a gang, and then that gets used two years later to associate them with that gang and establish a motive for a, a joint enterprise murder when there was very little evidence that this murder involved any particular gang in the first place. Yes, that is one of the more um, troubling cases. I think. I mean, there is a real issue there with not taking into account the lapse of time, and yeah. shocking to me as well because with bad character evidence, you know, the amount of time that's passed between previous conduct and the alleged incident should be a pretty important factor in deciding whether the evidence is relevant and admissible. And yet the Court of Appeal was very dismissive in that case, saying that you know, the length of time uh, did not, so said it did not reduce its, its impact or diminish its relevance and didn't explain why. Yes. Uh, and that's what I, I you know, I, I did find, that the, and also there wasn't sufficient guidance on that. I, I want to talk a little bit, if I may, I don't, you know, and of course, please carry on, about gang and putting rap on trial, uh, because we're using that music here in the UK and the drill, but uh, it does feel a bit like, you know, be the guilt by association, therefore rap racing guns are stereotypical narratives that are used to to prosecute but black people are grossly overrepresented on gang databases so is there an argument about actually criminalizing culture or um the disproportionate application that equips the term gang and with the ability to evoke stereotypical image, images of black criminality, which is different to white criminality. Are you seeing that in some of your work? Absolutely. I mean, we don't see this gang narrative being used to, to anything like this extent when it comes to white defendants. Mm. Um, you know, the work of, of Patrick Williams and Becky Clark have done quite a lot of empirical research around joint enterprise and see the gang narrative being used much more in relation to black defendants than, than white defendants. We know from the work that's been done looking into the, the Met Police's gangs matrix that about 80% of people in the matrix are, are black boys, which does not correlate to the commission of serious youth violence. You know, black boys are not responsible for 80% of youth violence. And many of the people named on, on those databases don't actually have any involvement with 
with crime. Um, in terms of how this then gets used with, with videos and things, I just want to take, take a step back on the relevance point, because I think that all of this needs to be framed within an understanding of sort of the basic conventions of, of rap music. It can't be taken at face value. I think the courts, the prosecutors of police are being way too quick to take rap literally. The conventions of the genre, you know, there's a lot of figurative language, symbolism, metaphor with drill, there's an expectation that content is going to be violent. It's characterized, yeah. not all drill is violent, but it's characterized by violent content. References to weapons, to violence, to drug dealing, to criminality are normal. And there's also an expectation that the artist will at least appear to be authentic, right? As far as the listener is concerned, the more authentic it appears to be, the better. But yeah. that doesn't actually mean that it is authentic. There are lots of people involved in rap and drill who have no involvement in crime or they grossly exaggerate any involvement that they, they may have. So it can't be taken at face value. It's unreliable as evidence of, of fact, so much so that it can't actually help. I don't think in most cases, I'm not saying it's never legally relevant, yes. but in most cases I've seen it can't actually help to resolve any issue in the case. And insofar as there may be factual content, how is the fact finder to distinguish what is fact and what is fiction? In, in rap lyrics. When it comes to gangs then using, you know, rap lyrics and videos to associate defendants with particular gangs, there are all sorts of, of, of problems with this. The extent to which, you know, lyrics and participation in videos is relevant and reliable evidence of gang membership is highly questionable in the same way that we can't take lyrics at, at face value. It's very common in drill to use a gang aesthetic. Yes. And even if there is intelligence to suggest that certain themes or signs from a music video are affiliated with an actual active gang, being in a music video using you know, those terms or displaying those signs is hardly strong evidence that a person is in a gang. There are lots of people who end up in music videos because it seems like a fun thing to do, because it seems like a safe thing to do, because their yeah. friends are involved, um, or because they themselves are exploiting this gang aesthetic as, as a good way of getting attention and popularity. So I think that to say, you know, merely being present and taking a minor role in a music video where there's references to gangs being made can help to establish gang membership demonstrates a complete lack of understanding of this form of, of popular youth culture. Right? Which is why a case like Sode, when you've got a 14 year old doing this and then two years later saying this is a clear and direct link between him and a gang is outrageous. Yes, absolutely. And, and I think Court of Appeal, I mean, there are other cases waiting will no doubt intervene at some point. But I wanted to ask you a little bit about recently, without sort of divulging all the facts, um, a case you were involved in with Felicity Gary, we've already heard about some of this, and, and what your expertise was uh, as evidence that was required in that case. How did your expertise feature in that recent case? I forget where it was now. Leicester, uh, I think it was. Was it Leicester or Birmingham? So I, I don't know much about that case. I wasn't instructed as an expert in, in that case. I think that there might have been expert evidence in, in that case. Uh, so I can't say much of it. Didn't, I didn't have a lot of involvement. I had presented some work at a seminar. So I had a, a paper on, on the relevance of or irrelevance of rap, which I've been working on. And Felicity attended the seminar and then we made contact afterwards. And I shared with her a draft of, of this paper, which We'd have to double check with her, but uh, I think she used to help inform her submissions in that case. And then yes. the evidence did end up being excluded, excluded. Uh, which as an academic researcher, you know, is, is really great that my work is having some sort of direct and immediate impact um, in that way. Um, but I have worked on some other cases as an expert, providing mostly written reports 
Yes. So where the prosecution have made an application to adduce lyrics or videos as bad character evidence, I might be asked to write a report giving some sort of background and information about rap or drill, the basic conventions, and then commenting on the way in which the, the lyrics or videos at issue meet those conventions and the relevance or irrelevance to the case, usually something about prejudicial effect. Yes. Um, and if there's been a police, because as I mentioned earlier, it's often police officers who the prosecution used to interpret and contextualize rap lyrics. So they might also be, uh, be asked to, to comment on the police's interpretation and contextualization of, of the music. Yes. It, well, it's interesting, isn't it? I was involved in a case recently, which just, just on, on the extent of officers' evidence uh, as experts within the criminal procedure rules, and in fact, it, it involved social media. So it was a tech, it was a tech point uh, I was taking where an officer was seeking to analyse various images using various social media platforms, but then actually concluded that in their eight years, they'd never had any formal training. Uh, and I was applying for the exclusion of that, all of that as pure opinion uh, and not relevant because uh, our expert, of course, was a true expert within the meaning of the rules. Uh, and so it could comment in a much better way because often officers are simply um, basing their expertise, quote unquote, on experience, aren't they? They haven't studied from an academic point, for instance, the lyrics, and they make assumptions which can often be narrow. Because in essence, I've never seen any criminalization or application to adduce, for example, you know, country and Western songs, which are, you know, include uh, details of uh, an incident or a violence incident. I mean, I appreciate they're often, you know, love loss or, you know, so on and so forth. But, you know, Delilah, for example, which is uh, sang by Tom Jones. And I discussed this, you remember, on my podcast with Felicity, mm. where it's actually quite violent lyrics, but they're mainstream. They're not rap. That's very different criminalization, which I've never seen an application as opposed to rap. So do you think that rap's got a big, a bad rep? Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, there's there's several things to unpack there. You know, the use of, of, of police officers, and I was, the most recent case I worked on, the police officers who interpreted the lyrics, and I looked at their, their description of their expertise, and they were a drugs expert. And the only contact they seem to have have with rap that they mention in their expertise is that they come across lyrics when analyzing phones. Yes. <laughs> you haven't wow. studied anything to do with the genre, the culture, um, aren't immersed in it, and yet are being put forward to interpret and, and contextualize lyrics. Um, and yet we don't see this being done with other genres of music. So when I've been conducting searches for cases, I have used some quite broad search terms, you know, like lyric, music video, mm. and by and large, it's rap. There's a, a few cases in, which seem to involve other genres, but we don't see anything like this with, with other genres of music. Um, so I think absolutely the, the culture has been criminalized in the sense that, you know, it's not a crime to rap or to enjoy rap music, but it is being used as evidence of criminality. It's being associated with criminality in ways which enjoying or performing other genres of music or writing violent novels or performing in violent plays is not associated with criminality. And beyond the use of rap as evidence, we've seen gang injunctions being imposed, which regulate what rappers can do. Um, so probably most famously with um, Skengdo and AM who were subject to an injunction which prevented them from 
rapping certain songs or performing certain lyrics, which they breached at a sold out concert and then received a suspended prison sentence for performing one of their songs. We see criminal behavior orders following convictions, which convictions which have nothing to do with rapping, but then um, include you know, regulations on on making music. So again, most famously would be Digga D, who was subject of a, a documentary on BBC Three recently. Yes. To inform the police 24 hours before releasing new music and get getting lyrics vetted. We see drill videos being taken off of YouTube at the request of the police. And this fits into a much longer history within which the establishment through the media, through politicians, through criminal justice agencies have associated rap music with crime. So although you know, when Drill took, really took off in, in 2017-18, there were loads of media headlines saying this is causing knife crime and so on. Actually, even in May, we had our first Drill single reach number one, Tion Wayne and Russ Millian's song Body. And it was greeted with a Daily Mail headline, The Soundtrack to Murder. This goes back, you know, decades. So in the mid 2000s, there's examples of prominent politicians, including David Cameron, I think in 2006, criticizing BBC Radio One for playing rap music that encourages crime. Um, we had the Metropolitan Police's risk assessment form 696, which was scrapped in 2017, but it included, um, it was for, for risk assessing uh, live music shows and included questions which sought to ascertain the ethnicity of performers and audience members. And if they were black, you know, that was going to increase, most likely increase the risk of, of that, that show. Going back further, you know, in the US, from the time that rap originated in the 1970s, it's been police, it's been criminalized. And most famously, the FBI investigations into NWA. Yeah. So this has been, the culture has long been criminalized. But I think what we see now with drill, and maybe because drill is such a provocative and inflammatory genre, and it has just taken off in the UK and has its own you know, distinct UK scene, maybe in the way which um, gangster rap didn't, we're seeing it being treated sort of on, on another level in terms of being criminalized. Yes. So the, the importance for me, you know, this podcast is about law and the guidance in the law. The importance and one of the reasons I wanted to interview you is that, of course, there's a danger, isn't there, that even if the evidence is relevant, it should not be relied on for its value in proving an issue shouldn't be outweighed by its prejudicial effect. Because isn't this the danger? The, the jurors may believe that violent or inflammatory lyrics are far stronger evidence of guilt than they actually are. And maybe perhaps because of a lack of understanding of the conventions in rap music, or perhaps the, the evidence plays into preconceived notions about black people as criminals, which means the basis of the convictions would therefore become unsafe. And I noticed that in America, they did some studies, didn't they, where you know, they gave a history of certain music to juries uh, and because they were looking at racial stereotypes in groups. Because, was it the free, Freed study? Uh, which is quite old now, about 2000 or 1999. Uh, and they found that they would give two, you know, participants were given identical violent lyrics. One group believed that the lyrics were from a rap song related and therefore, you know, would convict more easily. Uh, and the other were given, you know, lyrics from a country and Western song were not, so therefore wouldn't convict. It, it, isn't that the, the, the concern? It's, that's my concern. The jurors are not given the full picture, uh, and in fact, because of ill-conceived ideas. Uh, is, that, is that a fair 
danger that I'm worried about as an advocate? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. So there are there is this history of studies from from the US. You mentioned Freed's study from 1999. There are more recent studies you know, 2016, 2018, where, again, participants are given identical sets of lyrics. And those who think they are rap rate them as being you know, more harsh, more in need of regulation, are more ready to associate the lyricist with criminality and being in a gang just because of the genre, not yeah. because of the actual content of the lyrics. So, yeah, I think there's a real danger that uh, juries might attach too much weight to the evidence, more, more weight than it deserves, if it deserves any at all. Um, I mentioned earlier, I don't think that juries are in a position to you know, distinguish what is fact and what is fiction in, in rap music. Um, unless they happen to be you know, hugely immersed in the culture themselves. Even, even then, it, it can, in any given song, how do you know what's real and what's not? Yes. There's the risk of, of jurors being too emotive. So the case law you know, suggests that juries can put their emotions aside and attach proper weight to the evidence. But when you're seeing videos with kids in tracksuits and face masks and you know at night and making stabbing motions and gestures with their hands and rapping about shooting and killing people and things um people who aren't familiar with that kind of music and the culture uh, might you know might be very hard not to take an emotive approach to that that evidence yeah. so there is a risk of reasoning prejudice there's a risk of moral prejudice and there's the risk of racial prejudice which you um allude to because you know Rap has long, it is a black form of music and it has long been associated with um, crime and, and criminality. And some of these, you know, rappers consciously exploit stereotypes within the music themselves. But I don't think that makes it okay for prosecutors to exploit those stereotypes to do some sort of racist signaling in the courtroom. Yes. But, but interestingly, you know, rap music or drill music, which is what we're talking about specifically just now, doesn't get to number one. Uh, by simply being listened to by the black community, if those assumptions were correct, it must be being listened to by listeners from Caucasian communities and uh, you know other groups. Uh, and th but they are not over criminalised in the criminal justice system, uh, which is my my point about the assumptions, isn't it? So you know, white children are not being criminalised in the same way. Perhaps one might. I don't know if there are any studies on it in the same way as black youths are yeah no absolutely so so white children get to enjoy the music and have this sort of insight into this culture that they may or probably are not part of but they don't yeah. suffer any of the repercussions of it that yes. the black children do by being part of it by being part of it or yeah. associated so uh, on a serious note though uh, young people particularly in all our cities are being subjected to dreadful county lines. Young black people and white people have lost their lives, children, uh, to knife crime, which is sad uh, and too many, too many young people have lost their lives, you know, by being in the wrong place uh, and for various uh, reasons. So if I put my prosecuting head on uh, and my concern for public protection, isn't it fair that we try and use whatever means possible to try and curb that, and that may well involve the use of rap or admitting uh, as bad character evidence, or in the old law, similar fact evidence. It, it, it would have been, but I'm showing my age. I'm sure you're um, younger than me. I think is it, is it fair? Can we really prosecute? Can we really criticise prosecutors to that extent? If really what they're doing is trying to stop the deaths and the murders of young people 
in Britain, and it's not just London, it's, it's nationally, uh, and the entrapment in gangs. Can we really go to, to that? Isn't it fair enough for them to try and stop that? Or do you... well, I mean, I'd, I'd answer your question with a question. How on earth does using music as evidence in criminal trials stop knife crime or youth violence? Hmm. You know, when we're talking about criminalizing a culture. Um, Justice put it really well in their recent report on uh, racial injustice in, in the youth justice system. Yeah, I read it. I read it. It's a great report. Drill evidence is, the use of drill as evidence portrays the genre, which is closely connected to, to Black communities, as innately illegal, dangerous, and problematic, and it demonizes a predominantly Black-led genre of music. So it's potentially, you know, demonizing what for some is a healthy alternative to crime. Yes. And to this sort of activity. And I don't, you know, I, I, I don't dispute that the, the link between, so there's no empirical evidence to suggest that being involved in rap or that drill as a genre causes crime. That's just an unfounded suggestion. But that's not to say that there's never been any correlation between a particular you know, video or lyrics and a particular instance of violence. Um, but there is no general correlation. And even where there might be a correlation, it's very, very difficult to identify and, and, and unpick what that is. And so I don't see how using the music as evidence will in any way help to prevent people from being involved in crime or, or knife crime in particular or being involved in gangs. If anything, it's, it's yeah, sort of demonizing and taking away an outlet which some kids have a need. Yes, yes. And there are better ways. Um, oh, absolutely. Yeah, that's not where the resources uh, yeah. should be put. No, because the, the potential, I mean, I'm playing devil's advocates with you to a large extent. I'm not cross-examining you, forgive me. But <laughs> it's a good point that I make, isn't it, on that issue, because that may be the justification for the ongoing use in, in that way, uh, even though I'm concerned about the potential consequences, which are wrongful convictions and the further criminalization of, of black people and young black people. Um, yeah. I mean, I think, you know, I've, I've tried, we, we need to, I haven't, I haven't had too much opportunity to really hash this out with police and prosecutors who think that this is the right thing to do. <laughs> I've only had a face a little bit of pushback and I've been trying to engage with legal professionals on it. So I think we have to ask the police, the prosecutors, the judges for their honest opinion on why they're doing this. Mm. I think part of it is a lack of understanding, you know, themselves of, of, rap culture and, and genuinely believing that it sometimes can be taken at face value and it is relevant, even when it's not specific to the crime at all. So in these cases, we're not talking about detailed confessionals. We're talking about standard generic lyrics about violence and weapons and drug dealing and so on. And the person happens to be accused of a similar kind of crime. I think that there is an element of it just being easy and lazy. Yes. And I also think though that, you know, when we think about whether and how this evidence is relevant, it's not being assessed from an appropriate standpoint, right? So the concept of relevance is not neutral. Mm. Um, whether we think something is relevant, what inferences I think can be drawn from any given piece of information depends on my own views and my own experiences mm. and my beliefs, and it might be informed by stereotypes. And we, we realize this with some kinds of evidence. We've realized it with sexual history evidence. We've, we've, yes. Attitudes have changed hugely on the relevance of sexual history evidence. Yeah. When it comes to rap, we look at who's making the decisions. It is, you know, judges make the decisions as to whether to admit or exclude the evidence ultimately. And they are predominantly older, over the age of 50, upper and middle class white men, and to a lesser extent women, 
who I might be making big assumptions, but I, I, I don't think have much immersion in the culture of rap. And so their, their perceptions and their beliefs and experiences that are influencing their determinations of relevance and admissibility are quite far removed from the origins and the culture um, of rap. So it then doesn't surprise me that they would ascribe to it more probative value than it might warrant or be overconfident in jury's ability to, to assess the evidence. Um, but I think that's a problem. We, we need to recognize that that's a problem. Yes, but, but it doesn't follow, does it? That if you had more, because on that argument, uh, you'd be saying, well, if we had more diverse judiciary, they would make, you know, they'd be more immersed in, in different cultures and therefore would be more understanding of the culture. You're not saying that. I think you're just saying that we need more educating of the decision makers or admitting or excluding the evidence. I mean, we absolutely need more diversity. In the yes. Oh, yeah. That's a, that's a different <laughs> argument. I think it's a step in the right direction. Oh, um, yeah. Oh, yeah. Think about the fact that, you know, rap has been around since the 70s. So I don't think that age in itself is an excuse not to know anything about <laughs> rap music. But I, I do think that, that, yeah, decisions, both admissibility decisions, and then if the evidence does go in, which, ugh, you know, it shouldn't, but if it does, um, yeah. in most cases, it shouldn't. There need, the, the fact finder needs this wider context to have any shot of, of safely assessing um, the evidence. And there are, you know, it, there does seem to be a growing trend of uh, defense instructing experts yes. to write reports and to, to provide this education in this context. And anecdotally, it seems that that can be effective. So while looking at the appeal case law, you know, there's only one successful appeal that I've seen and that's Alimi. Around, there seems to be more success in pushing back against this. Well, I alluded to Salimi before, but can you just very briefly tell us what happened in that and why you think it was successful, as opposed to some of the later cases which haven't yet, you know, we haven't got an overall guidance on the issue. You know, I'd like to see the Judicial College perhaps having a lecture, you know, um, and inviting expertise so that there's a balance on the issue because knowledge is power. But can you just tell us a little bit about Salimi? I mean, I, I can't. Um, um, Alimi, forgive me. Alimi, yeah, Alimi. Alimi, yeah. Yeah, Alimi. Uh, yeah, so I think it was, I'm doing this off the top of my head. Um, I think it might, I think it was a murder. It might not have been, but that doesn't really matter. And it was said to be a gang, yeah, I think it was a murder, a joint enterprise, and it was said to be gang related. And there were two music videos when yeah, yes. into evidence and Alimi had appeared in both videos along with his two co-defendants. His role in the video was as a pure extra. So he didn't, he wasn't doing anything. I think he was like swaying in one and holding a drink in another. No signs, no saying anything, not getting a shout out, you know, just merely being present. And the Court of Appeal um, held that that being present in videos was not enough to associate him with the gang, the gang, which was apparently related to these, um, these videos. The videos, though, were, according to the Court of Appeal, rightly admitted against his two co-defendants who were rapping. Yes. Right, so it kind of sets this... I don't want to say a precedent, but you know, being present in a video is not enough. No. But I... we see from other cases that once you even take on a minor role, like making some sort of gesture, getting a shout out, you know, oh, then you're active in the video. The contents of the video can be attributed to you and your character. Yes. Um, it was firearms, that case. I've just reminded my, okay. myself. And, and they were talking about glorification of violence and guns, which is why it was admitted against the other two properly, uh, properly, um, as opposed to uh, against Alimi. Yeah, it, I mean, it's, 
it's so so fascinating i mean i go back to when i was probably quite a junior junior barrister not senior barrister doing a case uh defending somebody who was classed as an emo i don't know if you remember um that and so um and it wasn't even admitted in the proper way under the the gateways uh, and there were identification issues in that case um in in any event so it's interesting how culture dress sense and now lyrics now are being um used as bad character evidence um and how the law has evolved in that way so in essence it's not just guilt by association of a culture if, if you like but in fact it's inferences isn't it and circumstantial evidence to a large extent which you know we used to apply to have cases um stopped you know under section 78 of pace because of the way the evidences were reduced and so on and yet we've gone in a way in a reverse way haven't we how, how do you see it the case law emerging or developing in the future because <laughs> you know there are many you know a few things get leave to appeal these days um, yeah. um i'm not really sure so you know when it comes to you that's a really interesting example of the, the emo subculture and yeah yeah I, i've really seen this kind of pattern or trend with rap and i've although i've been the the research I've been doing has sought to see how music is being used in general. It's only rap where there seems to be this actual trend, this pattern, you know, it's become a problem. And so in terms of where I see this going with using rap music in this way, I'm not really sure. So part of me is very pessimistic. Yeah. Um, because as I mentioned earlier, you know, rap has been associated with criminality for decades now. And it's so easy for prosecutors to use rap music to do all kinds of signaling, including racist signaling, you know, rather than just having to come out and say it themselves. I don't think it's just going to stop. More likely, though, you know, drills, we've said it is mainstream. And the more mainstream it becomes, I think the the probably the less likely it's going to be, or, or we might see a, this happening less often. At the same time though, you know, drill will evolve into something else. Mm. And yeah, so I don't think that this is just gonna stop. I see this continuing to happen. But as I also mentioned, it's, you know, it's heartening to know that on the ground in first instance trials where there is at least experts informing decisions, yes. this evidence is getting excluded. Yes. So it might become you know, less, easy to get it in it's being challenged there is pushback i'd like to see much more scrutiny uh, a much more rigorous approach being taken i mean ideally this just wouldn't be going in there'd be an exclusionary rule right if not for lack of relevance then because of prejudicial effect yes um, but in the absence of that decisions need to be much more rigorous and so we probably do need at least an appeal judgment making this this very clear what sort of factors need to be taken into account in assessing the relevance and the admissibility of rap and how that should be done. Yeah, a, a bit like um, what the Court of Appeal have done recently in the family jurisdiction, which will affect crime, uh, on the use of domestic violence, the treatment of domestic violence evidence, if you like, in the courts. And so um, there was one an appeal, but then different factors making representations in the court of appeal so you know safety um women's aid um dads for justice various different organizations ha having making their submissions and then the court of appeal um then handing down judgment with guidance or, or even going back to the old days of hansen you know when the criminal justice act first came in and we were talking about bad character in that way 
that sort of safeguard and then having an amalgamation of various appeals which would then enable guide you know the guidance or an approach to be to be taken god we could talk about this all day but i wanted just very quickly before i ask you my last question mm-hmm. ask you about whether you think drill music can be used for a good really to appeal to young people perhaps involved in some of the uh, knife crime and gangs and you know to act as a deterrent of some sort uh, given how popular it is D- do you see that in some, uh, as an as an appeal, I'm just trying to find it a positive. Yeah, so I mean, <laughs> I'm, I'm I'm not a criminologist or a sociologist or a, or a musicologist. So I try not to step outside of the bounds of my expertise. Too much <laughs> and, you know, what are going to be uninformed opinions on what will and won't <laughs> stop stop crime? But and I think there have there have been attempts in the past to use rap and rappers to sort of have these anti knife and anti crime campaigns, and it just kind of gets a bit corny. <laughs> how successful they are but you know rap can be used as a route out of difficult situations right and it's not easy to be a rapper I can't do it it requires a lot of skill I think this is something else that's being overlooked just seeing this as kids you know writing about violence it requires a lot of skill a lot of linguistic skills and wordplay um, it can help people to develop confidence a sense of themselves a sense of belonging to sort of express dissatisfaction with the state of the world and their their living environment and to process negative thoughts and feelings so it can be a very very positive outlet for those who engage with it um so to that extent you know yeah i see it at least for some as being a good alternative to crime but i'm not sure how successful an actual sort of anti-knife drill campaign would be yes well uh, I, i hope that some people listening can certainly consider it but it is worth a go. Uh, forgive me, I said one more question, if you'd indulge me too. Um, I, I noticed, and I mentioned before, your book, um, Defender Participation in, in the Criminal Process, but uh, which is a great, great um, book published by Routledge. But you're also the expert, um, well, an expert in hate crime legislation uh, and the legal process for prosecuting um, hate crime, I noticed. Uh, and you've co-authored uh, a couple of reports on the subject, including hate crime and the legal process options for law reform. I just wanted to ask you a little bit about that. How did that, one, how did the book arise? And two, what's your interest in the prosecution of hate crime? And do you think it requires some law reform? Uh, okay, these are, <laughs> these are really questions. Yeah. I'll, I'll try to deal with them. <laughs> um, so starting with the book. So these are all very different areas of my research, although they're all you know, criminal justice related. Yes. Um, so the book came about, that was actually an extension of or the monograph version of my PhD thesis, which I started 2008. So that was almost 10 years in the making. Brilliant. I, the idea for that came from, you know, from studying evidence law as an undergrad and at master's level. And I am a proponent of the adversarial system, largely because of the autonomy which parties have in relation to their cases, with the onus being on the prosecution to prove its guilt, um, its case, the defendant's guilt. And within that, the workability of, of fair trial rights. Uh, the defendants have strong rights against the state. So it didn't then make sense to me that, you know, defendants can be effectively penalized for exercising their rights like drawing inferences from silence yeah you exercise the right to silence that can your silence can then be used as evidence of of guilt despite it being the prosecution's job to prove guilt so i wanted to explore the ways in which defendants are basically punished for exercising their rights not to actively participate in the criminal process and not to assist the state in in their 
prosecution and conviction yeah. and what that means for the notion of adversarialism. Uh, and so I argue in the book that by penalizing non-cooperation through things like adverse inferences and, and even criminal offenses, um, sometimes for non-cooperation, the nature of our system has shifted to one of obligatory participation, which is not compatible with um, adversarialism. Um, and there's also, a, it's underpinned by the shift towards, you know, managerialism and the efficiency ethos that we see in, in criminal uh, procedure. So that's the book. And then from that, I sort of shifted attention to rights to participate, like defendants' right to um, effectively participate in criminal trials and the barriers to participation. Because on the one hand, there are these almost requirements to actively participate, but on the other hand, it's very difficult to meaningfully exercise participatory rights in, in criminal proceedings. Yeah. So that's that. The hate crime stuff, the hate crime stuff, um, <laughs> that, <laughs> that started, so I worked at the Law Commission for a year when I was finishing my PhD, and I was involved in the consultation paper on aggravated offences, yes. looking at whether racially and religiously aggravated offences in the Crime and Disorder Act should be extended to cover uh, disability, sexual orientation, and transgender identity. Yes. Yeah. And so during that time, I obviously gained a lot of expertise around um, the law and hate crime. And there were a lot of issues which were beyond the scope of what we did or what I was able to do there around the procedure for actually prosecuting these offences. So I did some you know, independent work on that, wrote an article around that. And then a colleague when I was at the University of Sussex, uh, Professor Mark Walters, he's an absolute expert on hate crime. He was getting involved in a big EU funded project looking at the operation of hate crime legislation across five um, EU countries. And so I asked if I'd want to be involved on the UK side of things. So I got involved in that project and we looked at you know, how, how is the, the hate crime legislation working, both the aggravated offences, which cover race and religion, yeah. and then the separate sentencing provisions for hate crime which also covers sexual orientation, transgender identity and um, disability. And we interviewed lots of lawyers and judges and you know, did lots of case analysis and things like that. Uh, and yeah, we concluded that the law does need to be reformed. <laughs> um, at the very least, there needs to be sort of equality in how these characteristics are dealt with. And the yeah. fairest way, I won't go into detail on it, but the, the fairest way for both victims of hate crime, but also those accused of hate crime, seems to be to have the aggravated element in the criminal offence rather than waiting until sentencing to deal with it. Yes, well, I think we need to have another podcast on that because... I know, I'm going to bring you back because, um, <laughs> yeah, you know, as a practitioner, that's where we are with the aggravation. We're looking at it at sentence. We're not looking at it at the, at, at the offence. And so it's quite an interesting... Um, debate, isn't it, to 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 alter it um, in that way? Um, yes, because it would be good to to um, uh, yeah talk about strangulation as well, which I've done in a, in a different mm -hmm. podcast. So um, so you've got to come back to talk about hate crime because it is an evolving area and it's quite an interesting area. Because um, I noticed there's been an uh, what we would say an uplift in tariff, for example, for assaults on emergency workers, which have increased. Mm -hmm. Um, immensely in the recent sentencing guidelines. So it'd be interesting to talk about some of those concepts. But um, my final question is that, you know, you, you're um, an assistant professor at London School of Economics. Your areas of research and expertise are, are really quite interesting and involve you having to listen to um, large amounts of lyrics, no doubt. How do you relax? And, and really, it's a question about well-being or what would you like 
to uh, do by way of well-being? You know, are you a yoga person? Are you a runner? How, how do you switch off from the day job, if you'd like? I know I'm terrible at it, you know, and, and you know, I'm up at five writing books or prepping stuff, going to bed late and so on and so forth. Um, and I just wondered, what would you like to do? And do you have any advice on well-being? Uh, <laughs> advice not that I'm also terrible at it. <laughs> I'm definitely not up at five. <laughs> I'm not a morning person, but I, I work way too late and, you know, weekends and evenings because my, like your job, you know, my job is not a nine to five. Yes. So it, it easily becomes a 24 seven. Before this whole pandemic travel, yeah. like getting it, when I'm out of the country, out of my environment, then I can completely switch off and away from work. But obviously that's not possible. It's really difficult at the moment. So I've been turning to simpler things like reading novels, watching trashy TV, things that I don't have to think about and yeah. use my brain for, um, <laughs> spending time with friends, baking. I've started really enjoying baking through these lockdowns um, and mindfulness as well to try to, to try to switch off of work mode and into sort of relax mode when you know, you're always working at the same place, in, at home in the same place that you're relaxing. But I'm definitely not the uh, best person to be giving advice on, on how to do that. I need advice not to not be giving advice on, on well-being. Yes, yes. Well, we're, we're all still learning. Yeah. Um, well, I noticed um, just before we started recording, um, I was mentioning a case to you that would require expertise and you're quite busy. But uh, you mentioned there was sort of now a sort of a list of experts, if you like, um, specialising in a similar field to you as so far as music is concerned and rap music and gangs and so on. And so if a solicitor or counsel wanted to seek an expert in a case is there like an association or something and you weren't available how would people reach you right um we don't actually so i think we we have plans for a website which we don't officially have up and running yet but there are yes there are a number of of people not just academics and the academics that there are so i'm i'm a law specialist but you know people in cultural studies and criminology with people with expertise on gangs, on music. We've also got you know, industry insiders and linguists and things who provide expert evidence um, in these cases. So yeah, there is a sort of a small but growing network. In terms of how to contact us, I don't I don't necessarily want to name everyone's name just in case. Oh they no, don't. No. <laughs> yeah, well. But I'm happy for, you know, what we do at the moment until we've got a, a more centralized system is that if someone gets approached and they can't take on the case, then they will forward it to others and right. everyone is free. Right. Okay. So I'm happy to to take requests if people have them and to forward them on if I'm not available. Super. Oh, fantastic. Well, Dr. Wusi Bempa and uh, my heritage is Ghanaian as well, but not Chui, yeah. uh, which is why my pronunciation is so poor, isn't it? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much. Um, uh, I, I want to just call you professor. I'm always promoting people um, <laughs> on, on here. Uh, and uh, Give me a few more years. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah, I, I'm sure. But it, it's been really interesting talking about, you know, the, the relevance of bad character evidence in this way and in this kind of um, involving way, particularly in the cases that we've been discussing. So thank you so much for coming on the Law thank and Guidance. It's, it's been, been fun. It's been enjoyable. Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you so much.